Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. In philosophy, arguments are broken down into premises which you can prove to be true, and those premises follow one another to a conclusion, and that you can claim is true or valid, as in this famous example. Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Easy. No interpretation, no opinions involved. If Socrates is not mortal, then it's not his fault. You got the premises wrong. If one or both premises are wrong, your conclusion is not valid. Even if it's accidentally correct, you may be right in the end, but you didn't prove it in your argument. So there you go. In law, it's interesting to apply formal logic to arguments presented in court. Let's face it, you have to be pretty solid in logic and reasoning to be able to control the courtroom and persuade either a judge or 12 jurors of your case. You have to sound reasonable, and you have to present arguments that are valid. So, you have to make sure every step of the way you've backed up your arguments, and then the law will be applied. Why do we even need defense lawyers? The prosecutor can present the facts of the case, and the judge can apply the law as it's written, and convict, or not, as he or she sees fit. That's crazy. Someone has to present the other side. Two sides to every story, they say. So, there has to be a dialogue going on when determining someone's responsibility in any turn of events that led to the law being broken. Or sometimes turns out not broken. Okay, so it's getting a bit confusing now. What's the point here? Well, let's just say sometimes it is so convoluted that stepping back and looking at the entirety of a situation, you realize it's no one's fault. But everyone is to blame. Everyone except the victim or victims. It's never their fault, and that's why they're called victims. So, Bonnie, what's the point here? Well, we have to get to the end, and then you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. So please, don't leave me. On behalf of the family, we acknowledge the interest in this awful tragedy. We appreciate the outpour of sympathy that has been shown. Many inquiries that we have are mostly about Connor and Noah. I'm going to give you a, just a little resume and a day in the life of the two boys, their last day. Connor was uh, just shy of seven. In fact, his birthday was on the, will be on the 23rd of August. And Noah was four and a half years old. They were two typical children. They enjoyed life to a maximum. Their last day was spent playing with their friends in the backyard. They had a little pool, had a barbecue. And later in the afternoon, Jean-Claude Savoy took all the children shopping. Uh, they each had their own little carts and they filled their carts with treats and uh, after the shopping trip the two families Jean-Claude's family went to Jean-Claude's family's farm uh, I confirm it's a criminal investigation uh, because two young boys um, lost their life it's very serious and but before um, we have all the elements before us to to provide the prosecutor with with all the evidence that we, we gather is going to take time and we're not there yet. 
we check all avenues, all evidence, uh, to gather as much uh, as information as uh, we can. And yes, the owner is going to be, uh, uh, the investigator is going to meet with the owner, I would say, uh, in the short term. Campbellton, New Brunswick, situated on the beautiful east coast of Canada, has a population of approximately 7,500 people. It's located in what's called Restigosh County in the north central part of the province. The county is named for the Restigosh River, which flows through the country and is famous for its salmon pools, which have attracted wealthy American and Canadian tourists to the region's summer colonies for decades. Forestry dominates the local economy, along with tourism and winter recreation due to its excessive annual snowfall. In 2013, Mandy Tracarton, the mother of two boys, Noah, four, and Connor, six, worked at a teleservices agent at the Service New Brunswick, a local government agency. The three were living behind a business called Reptile Ocean, owned by a family friend, Jean-Claude Savoy. It was both a pet shop and a zoo. He kept numerous snakes and lizards and small crocodiles to sell, and he hosted tour groups. School kids and other organized groups would come in frequently, and they'd observe his collection of rare and specialized breeds. He had reptiles and other animals, including crocodiles, tortoises, and tarantulas. He lived in a converted apartment above the store with his son, who was a friend of both Connor and Noah, and they often stayed overnight at the home where they slept in the living room. Neighbor Diane Fournier said how often she saw the brothers happily playing together outside. They were fascinated by animals, she said, and they often came over to pet her dog. The kids were always playing and laughing. They were really full of joy and lots of energy, she said. The boy's mother, Mandy, had posted a series of pictures on her Facebook page of her sons and a friend, happily cleaning out a large snake tank. The caption read, It started with cleaning the tank, but a few buckets of water later, it turned into a water park. Facebook photos also showed both of the boys handling a small corn snake called Mr. Slithers that was owned by their mother. If you've never visited the east coast of Canada, you're really missing out. The beautiful rolling landscape, the fresh country and ocean breezes that blow through almost every major city are not the only highlights. There's a warm community feeling and a strong maritime culture, including amazing history, food, music, and sightseeing. And Campbellton is no exception. On August 4th, a sunny and warm Sunday, Savoy and his son had spent the day with Noah and Connor at a farm that was owned by Savoy's father. The boys played outside in the fresh air, riding on tractors and playing with rabbits, goats, dogs, and cats. A few hours later, the boys returned home, played out, but still insisting they wanted to still have the sleepover. They wanted to go to Savoy's and join their son in the suite above Reptile Ocean. So that evening, Mandy and her boyfriend dropped the kids off over at Savoy's apartment for a sleepover, something that they had done numerous times to their elation. The animals in the pet store in the zoo area off Reptile Ocean were all secured in cages and tanks, with locks, some double locks, and the keys were on a hook upstairs, where Jean-Claude had fastened them on a hook too high for any small, curious little people to get at them. 
The alligators and tarantulas were all resting in the lower building, and it was time for everyone else to get some sleep. Upstairs, Jean-Claude put his son to bed in his room and the visitors asleep in the living room. Finally, everyone all tucked away, Jean-Claude headed to his room for some rest after a long day of fun and visiting. Along a sidewall was an area measured off that was secured by a large glass wall. It ran from the floor all the way up to the ceiling. Inside the sealed off area was a sleeping African rock python. The only area not sealed off completely from the rest of the house was a vent leading to the ductwork in the home. It had a circumference of three inches. A vent cover that was used to prevent mice and other animals from touring the home that affixes to that hole with four screws sat on the floor. Almost two weeks previously, Jean-Claude sat watching television and witnessed the python attempt to rise up into the hole in the open vent. But his girth would only allow him to push the length of his head to a point and then he shimmied back out. Measuring over four inches around, he was too thick to make it up into the hole. Jean-Claude had watched that day, curious, to see if the 14-foot python would have an escape route out of the enclosure. He later commented to a volunteer who worked with him downstairs in the shop that the large animal could never fit through the vent, but she encouraged him just to screw the cover back on. Sunday evening, as the boys and Jean-Claude were all peacefully sleeping, the python whisked around eagerly in a sterile tank that had no rocks, wood chips, or any trees to hang off of, just a cold floor. He hadn't been fed that day, and a python of that size could eat a full antelope or crocodile. This guy, he usually fed on bunnies and rodents. No desire for humans, really. Very rarely has an African rock python attacked and consumed a person. The python's tongue picks up the scent of prey nearby. The smell of food excites the animal, and some movement is the final trigger. Sliding upwards towards the vent, using shedding skin to pull itself up the wall, the python reaches its head into the opening. Heat sensors in its mouth detect warm-blooded prey, even in the dark. The animal is picking up the scent of a Sunday afternoon at the farm rabbits, goats, and family pets. As the python pushes its 14-foot body through the ventilation shaft, its full 50 pounds are making the way over the living room where the two boys are sound asleep. As he slithers the last hanging end of his back end out of the vent, the shaft can no longer bear the weight of the serpent moving inside above the drop ceiling. The tiles, ductwork, and python collapse to the floor of the living room, where Noah and Connor are fast asleep. The snake cannot see prey visually, it can only focus on scent. The boys are not the food that the hungry visitor was searching out, so he will go hungry until the shopkeeper realizes that the enclosure is empty and the ceiling has fallen out of the living room, as he was dreaming peacefully in the room across the hall, his own son sleeping in another room unharmed. At 6.49 the next morning, Mandy was awakened by a pounding on her door and heard the voice of Savoy saying, 
Oh my God, your two kids are dead. Her boyfriend went next door with Savoy, and she waited in confusion. When he came back, he told her, It's true. It's a fucking nightmare, but it's true. The 14-foot python that had killed the two boys, after it had attempted escape from the enclosure before, was an accident waiting to happen, according to Bry Loist, the curator of the Indian River Reptile Zoo. Pictures of the shirtless boys at the age of four and the other six in their underwear were posted on their mother's Facebook page. Mandy Trecharton also posted a picture of the children playing with a smaller glass cage. These photos were taken at the pet store that also worked as an apartment in Campbellton, New Brunswick, Canada. The pictures emerged as experts revealed they believe the serpent, described as vicious by people that have seen it, may have been lured by the scent of the animals on the children, who just hours earlier returned from a visit to the farm. The owner of Little Ray Zoo in Ottawa said that snakes like the African rock python do not visually recognize their prey, so sadly the snake could have mistaken them for a food item. Jean-Claude Savoy housed the reptile in a glass enclosure in his apartment, just yards from where the boys were sleeping, and not in his shop that had locked cages and pens. He also knew the snake was aggressive and unused to humans. One reptile expert who saw it six weeks previous to the attack said that it was vicious and very nervous around people. But Savoy apparently failed to take adequate safety measures to ensure that the python would not escape. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police revealed that they would order the python destroyed the next day, and its carcass was to be taken to a local zoo, where herpetologists would perform a necropsy. The preliminary autopsy results provide police with a key piece of evidence as they continue to investigate the events of that night and the history of the snake. We still have to get the complete final report, but right now the way that those two boys died is consistent with being attacked by a snake of that size, said Sergeant Alain Tremblay. The pathologist has also taken tissue and blood samples to determine whether the kids were breathing normally before they passed away. Sergeant Tremblay said that for everyone, including the pathologist, this is a learning experience because it's probably the first case in Canada like this and we have to take baby steps, he said. He didn't want to discuss the extent of the boy's injuries, saying that investigators were awaiting the final report from the pathologist. He also indicated that investigators planned to conduct an in-depth interview with Mr. Savoy, the snake's owner. He said the investigation is going to show if there is any criminal offense that has been committed. The town's deputy mayor, Ian Como, said the boy's mother was devastated, and he added she was woken up and told that her two boys had been strangled by a snake in the middle of the night. He said that the small town of 7,500 people was on an emotional roller coaster where there's sadness at the loss of two young lives, and there's anger too. A tearful Roland Tricartan, the boy's grandfather, added, We're all in shock. The boys were sweethearts, lovely, lovely children. 
Mr. Savoy had earlier described how he found the boys at 6.30 a.m. on that Monday, and at first he thought the boys were just sleeping. They were sleeping, he said, but they didn't even open their eyes or anything. I thought they were sleeping until I saw the hole in the ceiling. I turned on the lights, and I saw this horrific scene. He explained that the snake went through the ventilation system, and he said, I don't understand how it did it. It went through the ceiling, and the snake fell into the living room from the ceiling. Mr. Savoy said that after finding the boys' bodies, he found the snake coiled in a hole nearby. He held it down and put it in a cage. He said the boys were the sons of his best friend, Mandy Tricartan, and that, My body is in shock. I don't know what to think. I feel like they're my kids. Further bad news was in store for Mr. Savoy. A petition was launched to shut down the shop over the way its animals were being treated. Others in the community didn't agree, saying, because ever since Jean-Claude got full custody of his child, every cage had two locks on it, and one of them was a master lock, and the keys to that were hung up in the laundry room. One person added, Jean-Claude loved those kids and he would never, ever have put them in danger. In a Facebook message, staff at Reptile Ocean wrote, Deepest sympathy goes out to the family of the children. A terrible accident without a meaning. On Wednesday night, August 7, 2013, hundreds of people gathered at the Salmon Plaza Monument downtown to honor the boys whose deaths horrified the small northern town. The funeral was to be held on Saturday, August 10th, 2013. Attacks by African rock pythons are very rare, but not unheard of. The last was in 2002, when a 10-year-old boy was killed and swallowed in Durban, South Africa. Three years prior, a three-year-old boy was killed by another rock python after it escaped its cage in Centralia, Illinois. This breed of snake is known to devour whole antelopes in the wild. In the wild, it's found throughout sub-Saharan Africa. And also, in 2009, six of the snakes were found in the Florida Everglades. It constricts its prey to death and has been known to devour whole antelopes or crocodiles. After gripping the prey, the snake coils around it and tightens its coils every time the prey exhales. Death is often caused by cardiac arrest rather than asphyxiation. As well as larger animals, it does feed on rodents, lizards, monkeys, and bats. The snake, which has brown, olive chestnut, and yellow markings, is recognizable by its thick body, which is covered with colored blotches that create stripes. It has a distinctive triangular pattern on top of its head and beneath its eyes. Dr. James Goltz, a veterinary pathologist, performed the necropsy on the python and listed its measurements as 12 feet or 3.8 meters in length, 24 kilograms or 53 pounds in weight, 12 inches or 30 centimeters circumference. The diameter was 4.25 inches or 10.8 centimeters. He discovered the python's digestive tract was empty and he indicated that it had not eaten in at least 24 hours before its death. One of the first officers to arrive at the scene said he was surprised such a large snake could move so quickly. 
but the RCMP constable said Savoy was able to recapture the python. The snake coiled around his arm, Maillé said. Savoy put the snake in its enclosure, where it could be seen through a large floor-to-ceiling window. The snake started hissing and lounging at us, hitting the window with its face. The python appeared to be trying to escape its enclosure again, said Maillé. He was concerned the snake wanted to feed and was trying to get back into the living room where the bodies of the boys were. It was going straight up in the air towards the vent opening, he said. He was also quite surprised how the snake was able to stand straight up, almost reaching the vent opening. I didn't expect such a large reptile to be able to do that. He said the snake was put in a large garbage bin and removed from the building. Ocean Eagles, a volunteer that worked at Reptile Ocean, said the python routinely did the same thing during her time at the store and it was normal behavior. She also noted it's a dangerous snake. Experts claim that these snakes will always try to get their head over something first, hook it, and then the body follows. When breeding, males will combat going straight up in the air. It's not only possible that the snake would appear to be almost standing. It's typical. Part of the police investigation focused on the snake and how it came to New Brunswick. Sergeant Tremblay said there was a large amount of documentation to pour over. Mark Diorn worked with Mr. Savoy for about six months in the early 2000s. He said the snake, which was then about one and a half meters long, arrived around then and Mr. Savoy's store, Reptile Ocean, was operating as a private zoo with all of the proper permits to house a snake of that kind. He said the python was originally owned as a pet, but then it was seized by authorities and given to Mr. Savoy. Mr. Dioran said he did not know which agency seized the snake. But keeping the snake is illegal in New Brunswick unless the permit is issued. Accredited zoos have the permits to house these snakes, but such documents are not issued to people who want to own them as pets. A source at the newspaper The Globe said that Mr. Savoy did not have that permit. The boy's death marked the first time that a python is known to have killed two people in the same incident. This was declared by Johan Marius, who has written several books on snakes and runs the African Snakebite Institute. That's most unusual, he said. The province's Department of Natural Resources was still determining what would be done with the other exotic animals that were in Mr. Savoy's store. That brought in Bry Loist, the curator of the Indian River Reptile Zoo, and he helped to transport the animals to accredited facilities. He said, it's really up in the air at the moment. Hopefully, we'll be flying them to different accredited zoos across Canada. Police also wanted to know why the noise of the snake falling through the apartment's ventilation system and onto the mattress where the boys were sleeping did not rouse Savoy. He and his young son were asleep in another part of the apartment, but still... The apartment was small enough that a noise of that significance would seemingly be enough to wake someone. Well, in this case, the investigation has been ongoing since it first began when the day the boys uh, died in August uh, 
2013. Now the investigation has furthered and has brought us to the point where an arrest was made today. So this person is now in police custody, but the investigation is ongoing. So if charges are to be laid, that will be determined as the investigation continues. Savoie's lawyer, Leslie Matcham, says he was told months ago by RCMP that charges wouldn't be laid. He says he's confused and working on getting more information from the police and the Crown. Justice Frederick Ferguson presided over the eight-day trial. Jean-Claude Savoy would not be testifying for the seven women and the four men in the jury. He was charged with one count of criminal negligence causing death, which falls under Section 220 of the Criminal Code. It carries a maximum sentence of imprisonment for life. On the first day of testimony, the RCMP officers took the stand. Now, three RCMP officers took the stand today. The first was the crime scene photographer who was able to provide the court with a better idea of the layout of Reptile Ocean, the pet store, which was located in the downstairs and the apartment upstairs in which Savoie lived. Now, testimony from the first officer on scene was quite a bit more alarming, though. Now, he described the snake as enraged, and he said that after he instructed Savoie to catch the snake, that it wrapped itself around Savoie's arm very quickly and then once it was put in an enclosure it became even more enraged it started slamming up against the glass it was making noises snapping its jaws at the officer and actually standing up to eye level with the officer who described himself as almost six feet tall afterwards the court did hear the frantic 911 call that Savoie made where he is explaining to the police what happened, saying that he just desperately needs police to get there as quickly as possible as the snake is still loose and his young son is still in the building and he needs to go inside and catch the snake. The focus of Jean-Claude Savoy's trial for criminal negligence causing death had switched from the python attack on the two boys as they slept to an attempted escape by the snake some weeks earlier, and Savoy's failure to take any action after that incident. Savoy, now 39, was the one emotional when the boy's mother testified in court. She said she dropped them off for a sleepover that night, certain they were in good hands. She testified, I felt that they would be safe with him as they would be with me. Bob Johnson, the now-retired former curator of reptiles and amphibians at the Toronto Zoo, told the court that the snake's keen sense of smell lets it know that the prey is nearby. The smell of food would really excite, he said. That could be a trigger. Johnson said snakes become more aggressive when they detect possible sources of food, and an attack would have been unlikely had there been no animal smells on the boys. He claimed those boys could have been a stimulant to the snake. A number of witnesses have said it was common to see the cover of the vent on the enclosure's floor. Defense lawyer Leslie Matcham told the jury in his opening statement that Savoy believed the snake was too big to get through the duct, so he didn't see a need to secure the opening. The lawyer reminded the jury of testimony from a volunteer at Savoy's reptile shop downstairs from his apartment. She said Savoy told her that the snake had gotten into the ventilation pipe before, but only made it part of the way through. It had attempted to get in through the ventilation duct. He told me he was sitting down in his living room. He looked up and the snake was halfway out. 
Eagle said she placed a cover over the ventilation duct, but warned Savoy that it needed to be screwed on. She said she often cared for the dangerous snake and fed it rabbits, but was always very cautious. She testified, I knew what the snake was capable of. It can overtake any man. Under cross-examination by defense lawyer Leslie Matcham, Eagles said the snake appeared about two inches larger in diameter than the duct, and she never thought it could escape through it. I would never think so when you look at the size of the snake. It would never cross my mind, she said. Savoy made no attempt to secure the plastic vent cover to the pipe after that. But Savoy said he was able, because of the incident, to feel confident that there was no way the large snake could fit through such a small opening. He didn't ignore it because he was too busy or too lazy. He concluded there was no possibility of escape through the pipe. Jean Clos' attorney stated in court, We say the attempted escape was proof that you are safe. In his testimony, Bob Johnson said any snake enclosures for the Toronto Zoo would have a system of double doors and any openings would be securely caged. The enclosure in Savoy's apartment had a dryer vent style of cover for the ventilation duct that was not secured with screws or tape, he said. Johnson said the enclosure lacked items such as rocks and branches to stimulate the python. He said, I would not claim it was very conducive to the well-being of the snake. A pathologist who performed autopsies on the boys said they died of asphyxiation and each were covered in puncture wounds from snake bites. Johnson said once a snake bites, it's very difficult to unlock that bite and the large snake could have coiled around both boys at once. You do not get away from that anchor bite, he said. He also responded to the earlier testimony of RCMP officers about the python's aggressive behavior after it was captured, the hissing and lunging at the glass of the enclosure. A snake that responds like that is very aggressive. It has an extreme response to human presence. This animal was dangerous. During cross-examination of Johnson, lead defense attorney Leslie Matcham asked about the testimony of earlier witnesses who described the snake as being much larger in diameter than the ventilation pipe. They claimed to be surprised that the snake could have slithered through it. Johnson said most people exaggerate the size of snakes that they've seen, often describing them as much larger and longer than they really are. The court had heard the measurements during the necropsy put the snake at about 3.7 meters long, and 10.8 centimeters in diameter at its thickest point. During cross-examination, Johnson agreed that the dead snake could have measured skinnier when stretched out on the examination table. Meanwhile, a snake expert from Florida said dead snakes have a diameter that is 10 to 25 percent smaller than when they're alive. Eugene Bassetti is a snake farmer who owns Opological Services in Archer, Florida. He was the only witness called by the defense. His company breeds various kinds of snakes, including 7,000 to 8,000 pythons for sale each year. Bassett 
testified that after raising large snakes for more than 40 years, he was in disbelief that a snake that size got through the four-inch hole. But it did. Outside of court, defense lawyer Mikhail Bernard said Bassett's comments go to the merits of whether a reasonable person would believe the snake could escape. Matcham told the jury he anticipates the closing statement by Crown Prosecutor Pierre Russell would push the notion that the incident was a red flag, and Savoy should have acted to block the escape route. To prove criminal negligence, the Crown had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors that Savoy had a legal duty to care for and protect the brothers that Savoy had acted in wanton and reckless disregard for the safety of the boys, and his behavior was a marked departure from that of a reasonable person. Also to be proven was that Savoy's actions were significant contributing factors to the death of Connor and Noah. Lawyers made their closing arguments in the trial, and in the Crown's closing statement on Tuesday, November 8th of 2016, as Matcham anticipated, the Crown Prosecutor did key on the earlier escape attempt by the Python and Savoy's failure to block the air vent. Mr. Savoy saw that animal hanging halfway through that pipe. On August 5th, that animal got through the pipe a second time with fatal results. I would submit to you a reasonable person would block that opening so that it wouldn't happen again, said Russell. The Crown Prosecutor also noted the testimony by Eagles, Savoy's former volunteer. She said that Savoy laughed about the initial escape attempt. It was a laughing matter? We now know there's nothing funny, said Russell. Many times, Russell stated again and again that a reasonable and prudent person would have taken steps to block the escape route. He said they would have taken the appropriate measures and that it was dangerous to live in that apartment. He assumed the snake could not get through, said Russell. That assumption was false because it did get through and it killed two children. Russell said the only reason that the brothers are dead is because of Savoy's failure to attach the vent cover through the four screw holes. It would not have taken a lot of work, he said. Mr. Savoy failed to do what a reasonable and prudent person would do. It's not mere negligence here. This is a crime. In closing statements in the morning, Matcham painted a picture of Savoy acting as a father figure to the boys, picking them up at daycare, and often citing the example of taking them to his father's farm to enjoy riding the tractor and playing with the animals. That tells me he was a good father, said Matcham. That would not be the same guy who would be reckless and cavalier with their lives. Matcham noted that in the 911 call to report the deaths, Savoy told the operator, I've got another one up there, and he had to go get him. That was his own son he was referring to, and so Matcham was highlighting he didn't distinguish between the neighbors and his own son. At that point in the closing, Savoy took tissues to wipe tears from his eyes. 
Most of his supporters in the front row of the court behind him were crying as well. Matcham told the jury Savoy's belief the snake could not fit through the pipe was not out of line with the thoughts of a reasonable person. And he pointed to the testimony by Ocean Eagles and a snake farmer that didn't believe such a large snake could fit through that small opening. He concluded wrongly, but he did conclude there was no risk, said Matcham. The evidence doesn't just raise doubt, it shows others came to the same conclusion. That doesn't make it right, he said. It was just a mistake. There was much testimony about the vent cover, something similar to a dryer vent cover. It was for the air duct into the ceiling of the python's enclosure. And Eagles had testified it was always on the floor. John O'Brien, the boyfriend of Trey Carton, testified that he saw the vent cap on the floor at least once, and possibly as many as 20 times in the weeks before the boys were killed. However, neither thought much of the cap being on the floor and leaving the air duct entrance open. Eagles, who owned snakes as well, believed that the python's girth was too big to allow it to fit through the ventilation pipe. She even stated, If I was Jean-Claude, I probably wouldn't have screwed the vent into place either. Justice Frederick Ferguson gave his instructions on the law to the jury beginning at 9.30 a.m. on Wednesday, November 8, 2016, after which the jury began its deliberations. The verdict was delivered by an 11-person jury, because five days into the trial, a female juror was discharged by the judge. Jean-Claude Savoie has been found not guilty in the deaths of two young Camelton brothers. Six-year-old Connor Belt and his four-year-old brother Noah were killed by an African rock python in 2013. As the four women in the front row of the jury box stood and stated the words not guilty, Jean-Claude Savoie threw his head back, his mouth agape, and took a deep breath and fought back tears. On the other side of the courtroom in the second row, Mandy Tricartan closed her eyes momentarily, and she opened them and stared straight ahead. There were no tears. One week earlier, a remarkably composed Trey Carton sat in the witness box in that very courtroom in Campbellton and described how Savoy, now 40, was once her best friend. Trey Carton hadn't come face to face with her one-time best friend since that day until she testified in court the week before. Justice Frederick Ferguson said the small town in northern New Brunswick had to accept the verdict. After the jury left the courtroom, Ferguson explained the reason for the juror's removal from the panel. Ferguson said the juror admitted to a significant social relationship with Savoy. The relationship was disclosed to the court by others outside the courtroom. Ferguson indicated the juror had been initially excused from jury duty over the summer when 2,000 jury notices were sent out, but showed up at the Campbellton Civic Center on the first day of the trial for jury selection and insisted she be put in the jury pool. At no point did she disclose her relationship with Savoy, even after being screened. The lawyers and judge were satisfied that the remaining jurors could carry on with the case. This does, however, bring to mind Savoy must have been aware that he knew the juror as well, and he did not bring that information forward to his lawyer. Both Jean-Claude Savoy and Mandy Tricartan left the courthouse that Wednesday evening without speaking to reporters. 
Savoy's lawyer, Leslie Matcham, said, He's a rather reserved and shy person. He left the province immediately after this tragedy, because as you know, there was quite a limelight on him and he just doesn't take well to that attention. And so for those reasons, he left. That is something he absolutely has to carry for the rest of his life. He was really like family to those two victim boys. He said the verdict was vindication, but not victory. This is not a case where there are winners. This tragedy, it took a tremendous toll on him. Mandy Treycarton was already on the way home when the Crown spoke outside the courthouse on her behalf. Obviously, they are disappointed, but it is what it is, said Rosal. The jury rendered its verdict, and we will have to live with that for the moment. Here's the disconnect. A close friend of Savoy's spoke with a local news agency the day the animal services came to clear out the remaining animals from the reptile ocean shop, saying, All kinds of governments had to get involved because of the rarity and endangered status of this animal. He said Savoy was more or less babysitting the animals for the government because they didn't have the proper means to manage them. He said Savoy is now being hung out to dry and being blamed for having the deadly snake on his property. Dioran said, You have to understand that a man does not come across these animals just because he wants them. The government was in step every way with him. He said that Savoy often took in animals that no one else wanted or were considered too dangerous for public safety. No one can look at me with a straight face and say they didn't know he had what he had. It can't be done, he said. We have to stop looking at him as this guy who owns too many snakes. We have to look at him as a guy who was providing an amazing public service, he added. An Environment Canada spokesperson named Mark Johnson confirmed in an email that the agency had seized a crocodile in 2002 following an investigation that took place in New Brunswick and Alberta. The crocodile was placed with Reptile Ocean in June 2002 and was operating as a zoo in the province of New Brunswick. When Environment Canada placed seizing of live animals in the facilities for care under the long-term loan agreements, Johnson said. He did not provide details about the long-term loan agreement. Johnson also confirmed that Environment Canada officials brought the African rock python to Savoy in 2002. It had been dropped off anonymously at the SPCA. As sadness continues to grip the community of Campbellton, New Brunswick, there is news tonight about how the snake that killed those two young brothers ended up in that reptile shop. It was handed over by Environment Canada wildlife officers back in 2002, even though the snake, an African rock python, is illegal in New Brunswick. So here we are. How do you hold anyone accountable? Seemingly, the government placed the snake with Savoy and didn't follow up with him on his permits for the dangerous animals. Either the permits expired or were never there. Savoy didn't store the python in the shop, deciding to keep it upstairs in the apartment where he felt he had a proper enclosure. He saw the vent cover had been sitting on the floor. He saw the dangerous snake attempt to climb up into the hole. He believed it would not fit through the opening, so he left the cover on the floor of the tank. 
He did not provide the python the proper living space, including proper lighting and things that would emulate somewhat of its natural life. Trees for hanging, rocks for slithering, and maybe some privacy. The snake required a running water source and bark chips for scratching. He simply put a brick on the floor for the python to descale on. The python was already genetically vicious, and then was put in a situation where irritation was building up like a pressure cooker. Savoy then felt it was okay to have the visiting children sleep on the opposite side of the wall that served as a partition between the children and a vicious python. He was the expert the people trusted to know if it was safe. Yet, he didn't even consider how long it was since the python had had his last meal and forgot about it. I get it, but I don't get it. I definitely don't think this is Jean-Claude Savoy's responsibility. I have opinions of almost every player in the events that took place, including the government office that placed the African rock python and then forgot about it. I don't know that I would say any one person is totally at fault. So I ask myself, who is responsible? Possibly every single person that didn't respect the fact that this dangerous creature was being confined in a suburban home rather than its typical environment. You have to respect that or look what can happen. Here's the thing about decisions. Every single decision you make affects the turn of events that it affects. Your responsibility in this world to be a government official, a reptile shop owner, a mother, a good friend, a father-in-law, or even a volunteer at a pet store has to make decisions to feel right with everything that you do during the day. When you make decisions, you're creating fate. You can't prevent the unknown and the unpredictable, but I don't think that we are talking about that. I feel bad saying this because I screw up all the time, every single day. But I have to ask myself, if two kids wanted to sleep over at a reptile zoo on the other side of a python tank for the night, what would my answer be? Remember, in the beginning I said, it's no one's fault, but everyone's to blame. I wouldn't want to tell that to the friends who spoke at the vigil for Connor and Noah. They'd probably argue that everyone is to blame, even though it's no one's fault. the community came together for a vigil for the two little boys. A friend of Connor's speaking to the crowd. Did you know that you have angels inside you? Another friend brought teddy bears and was overwhelmed with grief. Oh, we usually play tag sometimes. <laughs> and we talk about stuff. 